And today's scripture reading is coming from Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we're calling an audible on the uh, scripture reading, so that one's wrong. Uh, We're going to do verse 1, chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And it says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We ask that you would do exactly what Chris just read from Ephesians. Open our eyes. Make us aware of the awesome power that's at work in us. Let that power that raised Christ from the dead make you real to us in this moment. I pray that we would not only leave with hope, but that we would leave empowered to serve you. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think I was about 10 years old, and I don't know what I had been reading, but I asked my dad, Dad, what is a paradigm? And he looked at me with a straight face and said, 20 cents. So when I asked him, Dad, what's a paradox? You could guess what he said. No, it it was not actually two physicians. But what it is is something that is true, and yet it seems like it should not be true. And this morning, we are going to look at something in the scriptures that is true, but it seems like it should not be true. And if you paid attention as Chris read Ephesians 1, Paul prays that the church would be aware of the incredible, awesome power that is at work in the church. And yet, if you look at the church, how many of you would say today that the church is a powerhouse in America or in the world? Not many. Think about a country like China, where the church, there is a state church that's allowed under the authority of the government to function with limited freedoms, and there's also an underground church, and yet you would not describe it as powerful. They both are under the oppression of a government that does not want them to exist. So you think about globally, the church does not seem to be functioning in power. And yet Paul says that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, the greatest power in the world, is at work in your heart and is at work in the church. We have been going through the book of Luke. We've been here for some time. We're halfway through. This is a turning point 
And up to this point, we have seen the ministry of Jesus. We've seen him call people to repentance. We've seen him welcome all kinds of people. We've seen people find forgiveness. We've seen people healed. We've seen people set free from bondage. And last week, we saw how Jesus went up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and they saw his glory, and the mountain was covered in smoke. And it reminds you, if you've read the book of Exodus, of that time when Mount Sinai was, was covered in smoke, and it shook with thunder, and God spoke to Moses. And Peter, James, and John saw that the same kind of glory is coming from Jesus, that he has the same power And a voice thundered in the same way that it thundered before Moses and said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And what Jesus told them was that you need to take up your cross and follow me. So you see a paradox. Incredible power taking up a cross. And in fact, the power of Jesus' ministry was going to lead to Jerusalem, where he would be handed over to unbelieving people, where he would be beaten, mocked, crucified, and killed. And only on the third day would he rise from the dead. But even as he rose from the dead, the church was not established in power in a worldly sense. It proceeds following his example. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that shows the men who led the church early on, and you see their weakness and you see their frailty. This is not a passage of scripture that I would turn to for great encouragement and hope. And yet, what the scripture says is that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And that's enormously encouraging if you, like me, feel weak all the time. The power of God is used as we confess our weakness and learn to rely on that power. So at this point in Luke's gospel, it seems like it's been moving ever upward that we see the glory of Jesus. And now, at this critical point, contrasted with the glory of Jesus, we see the weakness and frailty of the apostles. And it's an invitation for us to recognize and remember that although we are weak, we serve a powerful Savior. And it's my hope today and my prayer today that we would leave empowered to follow the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see the failings of the apostle in four different areas, four different ways. And I think each of them, if we're honest, will show ways that we have failed. And yet, I don't want to leave you in discouragement. I want to leave you encouraged that just like the men who followed Christ and led the church early on, they were weak, you and I are weak, and we can be used of God in the same way. So look with me, we're in Luke chapter 9, it's most of the way through the Bible. I would encourage you, if you want to use a phone, or if you want to use one of the Bibles that are in the room here, to turn there with me. I think it'll help you enormously to see the words in the text of Scripture as I preach through it. We're in the second half of Luke chapter 9. And to begin with, we're going to see how the apostles demonstrated faithlessness. How they were faithless. Look with me at verses 37 through the first half of verse 43. 
It says, on the next day, that is, this is the day after Jesus showed his glory and they were so persuaded that he is the Son of God. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Notice you could see the majesty of God in the work of Christ. He is showing you again the power that he has. But what's stunning here is that he describes the people around him as faithless and twisted You see the contrast between our Savior Jesus and the people who were trying to follow him. Remember the beginning of Luke's gospel at the early point in Jesus' ministry. One of the first things he does is he casts out a demon so that someone is healed and set free from the power of Satan. What he's doing, what he's showing is that he has authority and power far beyond what Satan does. And yet his apostles who at this point had already gone out and served him in ministry, did not have the same power and could not do the same things. And he rebukes them because they are faithless and twisted. They don't understand what he's doing. And they are unable to do what he did. And they are contrasted with the majesty of God on display in the person of Christ. They do not believe, and they are not able to serve Jesus. Even though they've been following him, they still don't know who he is and what he's doing. And that becomes more and more apparent throughout this text. You know, if we were assessing the likelihood of Jesus to have staying power in the first century, you know, you're looking at him as a leader, as a preacher, as a teacher, and you think, wow, this man could change the world. Then you look at the guys around him that he's training, you would think, man, If something happens to him, this is not going to work. And that, if it depended on their strength, would have been completely true. To begin with, even after all this time, they lack faith. Not only that, part of the problem is their fear. Look at 43, the second half of 43 through verse 48 with me. It says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. 
at first glance, it might seem like that second set of verses doesn't go with the first ones, but, but here's what's happening. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. In fact, I think he says that because he's already told them that he is going to go to the cross and suffer and die, and they still don't know. They still don't believe it. And so he's saying again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Let this sink into your ears. Ponder it. Think about it. Don't dismiss it. Don't forget it. And immediately, they dismiss it and forget it and have an argument about who among them is the greatest And I think part of the reason that they are arguing about who is the greatest is because they have misunderstood what it meant to follow Christ. They believed that they would have worldly power and authority because if Jesus is the Christ and he's establishing his kingdom and he's going to rule, they who got on board early would have positions of prominence and power and authority because they followed him before anybody else did. And it says very clearly... When Jesus told them that he was going to be delivered into the hands of men, they were afraid to ask him about that saying. And I think the reason they were afraid is they worried about their own future and what would happen to them when he was delivered. Think about it for a second. In terms of a company... If you come on board with a a new company and you're super excited about its future success... You think maybe you'll, you'll be able to make some money. Maybe you'll have a position of leadership. And somebody takes you aside and says, you know what, we're going broke and I don't think this company's going to make it. If you have vested your whole life in it, fear will blind you to what is going to happen. And their fear was blinding them to what Jesus said because they were ambitious, because they felt like they were owed something, they were entitled to something, and they wanted personally to be great. They were in it for what they could get out of it. They were not following Jesus by imitating his example. They were following Jesus for what he could give them and what they could get out of it. And to correct that, Jesus grabs a child and says, look, you need to be serving the people that no one else cares about. You need to be willing to care for the least of these, because that's what Jesus does. When he is handed over to the hands of men, when he is delivered over to be killed, he's taking care of the least of these. He's taking care of you. He's taking care of me. Scripture says that Jesus died for us while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners. We were the least of these, and Jesus cared for us. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you want to be truly great, you need to be willing to be a servant, just like he was willing to be a servant on your your behalf and on my behalf. But they didn't understand it. Because they were faithless and they were fearful. Not only were they faithless, not only were they fearful, but they were divided. So notice with me verses 49 through 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Now notice, these verses are connected because what Jesus is correcting with this episode 
bringing a little child in and, and saying, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So he grabs the little child and he says, you serve little children like this. And, and John answered, master, we saw someone casting out demons. It seems like the two don't go together. Like why? It's like he didn't even hear what Jesus said and he's just bringing this other thing in. But it is connected. What John is saying is, we saw someone else who was trying to serve you, but he wasn't really following you, so we told him to stop. And Jesus corrects not only the pride and ambition that blinded them to the type of service that they should have been engaging in as they followed Christ, he corrects their quickness to dismiss other people that were working alongside them. They, they were divided and wanting to push away people that hadn't gotten in on the ground floor. People that wanted to serve in Jesus' name, but were not part of the same group. Jesus has a heart for the kingdom of God to spread. They have a heart to make sure that they have power and authority as the kingdom of God grows. And you see the same sort of ambition in churches today, in, in wanting to grow your own church at the expense of other churches. Sometimes churches have this sort of competition with each other, and I think you all know about it, but it's a real temptation to feel like, well, we need resources for our church so that our church can grow. And we forget that we're building Jesus' kingdom, and we ought to be working together. We want to build our own kingdom, and forget that God's picture is so much bigger and so much greater and so much better. So Jesus rebukes this tendency towards division. He rebukes their prideful ambition and their fear. He rebukes their faithlessness. And then you see finally how distraction keeps them from following Christ. Look with me at verses 51 through 62. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In this section of scripture, it says the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up. If you remember when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's talking to Moses and Elijah, they are speaking of his departure, of his exodus when he's about to be taken up. And before that, he told his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be killed and on the third day raised up. He's focusing on the culmination of his earthly ministry on the cross. He is going to be killed at Jerusalem. This is a turning point for Christ where he is focused on what the Father has called him to do. 
And so he is going towards Jerusalem. And he sends messengers ahead of him to go to a village of Samaritans and make preparations for him. He is rejected there because he set his face towards Jerusalem. And there's a, a, a little bit of an ethnic issue with Samaritans and Jews. They don't love each other. They don't want to get along. And, and if he made it clear he was going to Jerusalem, the Samaritans didn't understand what he was doing either. But neither did the disciples. And so the Samaritans reject Christ and say, we don't want to host him in our city. And the disciples say, perfect, let's call fire down from God and destroy their city. Which seems crazy. It's almost comical because it's so unthinkable in our world. But if they had read their Old Testament, they would have known that God destroyed people for rejecting him. And so they are zealous for Christ, but they have no sense of what Jesus is going to do. If you remember, Luke, the author of this gospel, also wrote the book of Acts. And as Jesus later sends out these exact same people, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. The apostles are going to come back to this town in Samaria. And he says, you will spread the kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that only happened just months after this episode when they're ready to call fire down from God on behalf of Christ. Christ goes to Jerusalem, dies on behalf of the people of Samaria, and then sends these people that were ready to destroy the city back to Samaria so that people can have new life and hope in Christ Jesus. The apostles are so quick to give up on people Because they've initially rejected Christ. They are so distracted by what they think they're going to get from following Christ that they are blind to what Jesus is actually doing. And as Jesus leads them down that road to Jerusalem, not only this this town is just the first of an example of people that fail to follow Christ, and there are so many reasons why people don't follow Christ, we're going to see just a few more of them. So the Samaritans didn't want to have anything to do with him because they didn't understand his mission at Jerusalem. And so they rejected him based on their own ethnic prejudices. But then, as he's going down this road to Jerusalem, someone says, I will follow you wherever you go. So he's like, I'm not like those Samaritans. I am willing to follow you, and I don't care if you go to Jerusalem. I don't care where you go. He has no idea what Jesus is going to do at Jerusalem. He just says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, you know what? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's not going to be comfortable. You may not have everything that everyone else has if you are genuinely following Christ. Jesus calls us to be willing to surrender all of our possessions, everything we have, in service of the King. Sometimes that means literally selling the things that you have. Sometimes it means making sure that you use them for the purpose of the kingdom. But all of it belongs first to Jesus and secondarily to us that he has entrusted it to. This person didn't want to follow him because it meant that he would not have the comforts of home. Jesus says the kingdom of God is more important than the comforts of home. Are you willing to give that up and genuinely follow Christ? There's another man, says to another man, 
Jesus actually said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. What could be more reasonable than that? People debate whether or not this man's father was actually dead. It could have been just an excuse. He says, you know what? I'm responsible for my household. And when my father dies, I need to be there to make arrangements for the funeral. And culturally, this was even more important in their day than it is in our day. Funerals take huge precedence in our lives, and rightly so. It's a time to grieve. It's a time to mourn. It's a time to be thankful for those who have passed away. But shockingly, Jesus doesn't say, that's good, go do that, and when you're done, come back. Jesus actually says the opposite. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And we can try to soften that and say, this man was just giving an excuse, and maybe his father wasn't dead, and maybe it would have been years. But the text doesn't say that. The text says, following Christ comes first before your family. And that's not a message that we are comfortable with or like to hear. But here's the thing that I would say to you. If you do not follow Christ first, you will not be able to take care of your family. You need to put Christ first in your life. And I'll add, Jesus makes it clear. He expects you and I to honor our father and mother. We have to take this statement in the context of everything Jesus said. He rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees for neglecting their obligations to their parents. But he also says, your call to serve the Lord needs to be the first thing in your life. And if you get that backwards... You will not be a good and a faithful servant, and you will not be able to follow Christ as you should. One of my desires as a dad is that my kids would know that I love them, but they would know that I'm first called to serve Christ, and that I would love them by serving Christ and showing them that their greatest joy in the world is in knowing Jesus, not in anything else. And that's the most important thing that we can do for our kids. And I think that's part of why Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, those who are spiritually dead, those who do not know who Jesus is and the hope that comes through Christ. If your family prevents you from serving Christ, you need to be faithful to Christ. It's a hard message to hear. But I think it's one of the quickest ways to know the priority of Jesus in your life. Lastly, there's a person who says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. So he's not giving some sort of indefinite, there's this thing in the future that I need to address, I need to take care of. He's just saying, I just want to say goodbye. That's all I want to do. And it seems like the smallest, most reasonable thing in the world. And again, Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, which is stunning. You know, in ministry, we really want to bring people on board, so we minimize commitment, right? That's, that's, oh no, it's not going to be that much work. No, no, it's not going to, like, it's all about what you need. It's not about what we ask you. And, And Jesus actually does the opposite. He says, you know what? Don't bother trying to follow me if you're not going to be all in. He, he magnifies the cost of following him. And I think sometimes, 
we forget the cost of following Jesus because we're so excited for what Jesus has done for us. We feel like we can have what Jesus gave us and then just live the rest of our lives without reference to Christ when he is our king, he is our savior. We can be distracted by the same sorts of things, the same sort of desire for comfort, the same sort of putting family above God, the same sort of distractedness that, yeah, maybe you started to follow Jesus, but along the way, your heart was distracted. If you look at these verses, if Luke's gospel ended at chapter 9, it would be one of the most depressing books in the world. Because it's like Jesus got a great start, and then they just crashed and burned. So, let me give you a preview of what happens in chapter 10. In chapter 10, Jesus sends out not just the 12, he sends out 72 people who are preaching the kingdom. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So you pray. You pray that God would send more people to spread this work. And you begin to see the heart of God in the rest of this book. As he takes miserable failures who are distracted and fearful and divided and faithless. And he turns them into servants who will die for the cause of Christ. So we look at this, it's easy to think, who among us has not sinned in these ways? We all struggle to have faith. We all have been fearful. We all have been divided. We all have been distracted. So the question is, what should we do today? Well, the text says, Jesus is inviting people to follow him. We are to follow Christ. We are to forsake the things that keep us from following him. In the book of Hebrews, it says it this way, lay aside everything and fix your eyes on Jesus. But what does that mean? How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? What does it mean to take up your cross and follow him? Well, I want to go back to the paradox that I started with. The fact that God's power is hidden in fragile people. You see, the hope that we have is that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work in me, and it's the same power that's at work in you. Yes, I'm a failure, and I'm a sinner, and so are you. But God's power is at work in us. And so, by the power of God, we can remain faithful to follow Christ Jesus wherever he takes us. As we see the value of Christ, we can lay aside all of the things that we treasure because compared to Jesus, everything we have is worthless. Think of what the Apostle Paul said when he said that he counted everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And why did he say that? I believe it's because the power that's available in Christ Jesus is a power that lets you triumph in weakness and despair. It's a power that's obvious because of your weakness. Paul said, we have this treasure in clay pots, in earthen vessels. So think about that for a second. You don't put diamonds and gold in a flower pot. 
Typically, you put it in a glass case so people can look at it, so people can admire it. You've never been to a, a museum that's displaying crown jewels and they stuff it in a clay pot. It doesn't make sense. But Paul said that, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the power is from God and not from us. The fact that God uses such messed up people is a demonstration that God is at work. If God established the church through the powerful, through the rich, God would not get glory. Because it would just say, oh, well, they're strong, they have resources, they're available to do ministry. They can do it because of their own strength. But that's not how God works. God accomplishes his work through the things that are weak. Things like you. Things like me. And Paul said that this gospel, this good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead is the power that changes everything. So we need to learn to depend on that power. And recognize what kind of power it is. Paul says in Ephesians that it is mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That's 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4. And he says that the kingdom of God is not of talk. It's not just words. It's not just inspirational speeches. The kingdom of God is not of talk, but it's of power. So how do we access this power? I think a large part of it is through prayer. We pray and confess our weakness. We pray and confess our sins. And more than that, we pray and we ask for power so that the power of God is made obvious in our lives as we fail and as we struggle. So that we, like the Apostle Paul, would be willing to leave everything behind for the sake of knowing Christ and for the sake of serving Christ. And I want to give you two examples of people in our church that I believe have done that. That we can follow because we've seen them. I've mentioned before, a couple of years ago, a man named Fernando Moreno. Some of you will have known him, some of you didn't. When I met Fernando, he had been on dialysis for around seven years. His body was absolutely failing. He couldn't eat solid food and hadn't eaten it in a while. He knew he was dying and his time was short. And yet, as he lived... Knowing that he would die soon, he had such enormous joy. He constantly told people about Christ. As his body was weak, the power of God was evident in his life, not because he was strong and healthy and blessed and had money, but because he had none of those things and he had hope and he had joy. He showed the power of Christ. And I'll even add this. Fernando did not make it a secret that he had a rough life in his past. He would have been the first to tell you that he was not perfect. And yet the fact that he was not perfect was a testimony to the power of God to save real sinners. Fernando is one example. I'll mention one other. Some of you know uh, Margie Clark. She passed away about two weeks ago. Margie was in her 80s. I think she couldn't have weighed more than like 75 pounds. She's not a strong woman physically, but enormously strong in her faith. Margie demonstrated in her frail body, knowing that her health was failing and that she had cancer and that her days were numbered, the hope of Jesus Christ. 
And I mention those two people very specifically because they've been part of our fellowship here. Some of you are young and by the grace of God, you may live 30, 40, 50 years. Some of you have a little less time than that. All of us are called to follow Christ with whatever he has given us. In weakness, knowing that we fail in some of these ways, and we fail in ways that were not mentioned in the text today, and yet all of us have the power of Jesus Christ available to us. So let me urge you, pray. Know that your sins are forgiven because of the blood of Christ and know that Jesus died so that you can walk by faith and display his power. Learn to depend on the power of Christ. In fact, let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we confess our weakness. We have so many needs and and we have nothing to contribute that you haven't given us. All that we have comes from you. And Father, I pray that your power would be at work in us. Teach us to forsake our sins, Lord. Help us to, to, to not be afraid, but to be full of faith. Heal our divisions. I ask that you would give us a humility that that we don't build ourselves up, but that we do seek to humbly serve. Lord, you are our example. And Lord, you are our redeemer. You forgive us for the sins and the ways we've already failed. Lord, I ask for today and for the future that you would empower us to follow you faithfully, to tell people of the hope we have that we've been forgiven, that we will be raised to new life in Christ. And I ask that that power would be real and evident in our hearts as we leave today. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.